Blog Talk Radio. If you could take us back, I know we talked uh, sort of after it, um, you know, everything kind of shut down, but take us back when you you and, and all the presidents of the, the universities decided to uh, not participate in athletics due to um, COVID-19 and what kind of went into that? Yeah, so, you know, it's, it's interesting, that question, because it's around this time when we were trying to figure out what life was going to be like for CIAA, particularly going in the summer with programs, um, trying to get an approved budget um, with the unknowns if we were going to be able to return. You know, honestly, I went into last year knowing or or having a sense that it would be very challenging challenging for us to come back. And so I had already prepared my team to think outside the box on if we don't come back, what can we do, assuming that, you know, we've got to be prepared for both scenarios. And I think that's all of us in this industry have been doing scenarios. If this happens, that happens. And when we met with our board last May, nothing, no decision regarding whether we were going to cancel or not had been determined because the the COVID and data was still new. We knew things were rising um, and was hopeful that there would be an opportunity for somehow, some way we could come back. And when we got through the summer and realized, you know, the fall season was looking pretty dim. We even tried to extend it. We decided to to cancel the season, at least the fall, and we would wait until January to make a decision about basketball in spring. Um, we even talked about moving fall into spring. Um, that was challenging by itself given the overhead and the staffing and the cost associated doing that. Now there are a lot of leagues who are doing it, um, and they're wore out. Um, but they're making it happen, I think, for the best decision of our conference um, to cancel our winter season and then even our spring, but giving some autonomy for our spring school, our schools to, to still try to play in the spring so that their athletes didn't meet, lose two years, we would give that opportunity but not have conference championships. And honestly, it's been tough. I mean, we run championships and events. This is what we do. It's really hard to watch other sports and other leagues, um, you know, try to execute. There's been a lot of cancellations, stop and go. It's a burn. Um, But, you know, some institutions and conferences are doing it. We chose not to. And in some ways I'm glad that we did it for the health of our student-athletes. And uh, welcome to the edition of the Bachelor News Radio show on the Bachelor News Radio Network, WCOM. Uh, in Carborough, Chapel Hill, North Carolina, IBM TV. You can listen live there on Thursdays as well. We'll get into all of those areas to check, check our broadcast. I'm L.A. Bachelor. This is the Bachelor News radio show. And we thank you wherever you're listening. We certainly appreciate it. You didn't have to, but you checked in with us, and we certainly do agree um, and appreciate uh, that the number to reach us, uh, if you have a question or comment, is 646 929 0130. 929 0130. Or online, blogtalkradio.com forward slash LA bachelor. If you're on Facebook, you can uh, make your questions and comments known at um, uh, Pad Nation on Facebook and on Twitter, Pad Nation 2. And always email us at labachelor at the Bachelor News Radio Network. Thank you. Um, uh, as you're listening, I want to bring in my guest, um, 
He is uh, a professor at Texas Southern and a prominent voice on the business, which is very important, uh, aspects and leadership of his HBCUs uh, out there and a specialist on HBCU sports, sports culture. And that uh, paradigm is Dr. Kenyatta Kabil. And, Doc, um, always a pleasure to have you on, my friend. Thank you. It's good to be on with you. I hope all is well. All is well. And I, I play that excerpt for you specifically, sir, um, because <laughs> you. when you, you, you look at, I mean, you look at what um, Commissioner McWilliams said, you, you're, you're familiar with Matt, uh, Madam McWilliams, um, and, and what she had to say and what went into, and I didn't even play the whole um, part of that. She went on to talk about the safety of the student athletes and, and some of the logistics that went into it. When you look at the decision that the CIAA made in not playing, as she said, you know, those fall sports and, and putting those away. And I, I remember, Doc, um, you, you just arriving to Norfolk, about to go to the Scope Arena in Norfolk, Virginia, to cover the MEAC, the Mid-Eastern Athletic Conference, and getting a text from a colleague saying, hey, the NCAA just shut you down. That happened that day. I was so hot because I just got there, and then they decided to shut it down. Uh, so we all know where we were when it happened. But from the economic standpoint, when you weighing the safety and the economics of this, um, assess what they did, assess, you know, the D1s, you know, the the um, the FCS, the uh, uh, MEAC and SWAC in particular, uh, deciding to move forward in those situations. How about it? I can take you back uh, as I frame that discussion is I was actually going to um, – hopefully get a chance to see you that Friday at the MEAC tournament in Norfolk. I was supposed to fly in that Friday morning and do a day there and then fly back into Birmingham to cover the SWAC before I came home. And everything was shut down. And when it really went back to that Wednesday when we heard, obviously, about the Oklahoma City Thunder, what was going on. And uh, I remember some of those meetings vividly because I was sitting in the office with the vice president of um, inclusion athletics, Kevin Granger at Texas Southern University. And I could quickly understand how this was going to be different. And there's a couple of things that we must look at um, in terms of looking at the decision from CIAA and then the MAC, MEAC, SWAC, and eventually the SIC. And as you bring the question in terms of that, as you set it up, looking at the Division II programs, Division I that operate at the FCS level in football, that's an important framework to really delineate uh, the difference uh, that was taking place. And so one of the things when you're looking at this decision is at the Division I level, um, those programs um, are associated with playing in the big dances, you know, and there's a considerable amount of money that's associated with getting into the dance. At the Division II level, while they pay the cost to bring them in for their uh, tournament, they don't get the windfall of money. So there is this component of first looking at the safety 
And then what is the cost associated with if you're going to play? Um, and, 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 Doc, and, and, Doc, if you could just stop and, and explain who they are when they pay the cost, who, who they are at the D2 level. Thank you for that. Yes, yeah, so the NCA um, provides revenue to each of these conferences, whether they operate at Division One level, which happens to be the um, components that the MEAC and SWAC operate at. That's their divisional level. And then the SIEC and the CIAA are at the Division Two level. And then they also have the Division Three level, and obviously you have some HBCUs that participate in the NAIA, which is an even different association. So the money that the NCA gets um, is like 90-plus percent coming from the basketball tournament. And so we think about all the money that's associated with the football, but all that money goes directly to those institutions. The NCA does not get a dime for the bowl or the playoff series, if you would. The only money they get are from the basketball tournament. So the revenues they get with that, they share with all the members regardless of divisional classification. But you get more money if you operate at the Division One classification versus those programs that operate Division Two, and they get obviously even less money at the Division Three level. So there are about four – There, before we talk about that revenue – it's important to understand how do each institution find out revenue sources. Well, one of the biggest revenue sources that people may not be really aware of is student fees um, that comes from the institutions. And students' uh, activity fees or athletic fees, because people call it different things, can range anywhere from 60% of the budget to 85% of the budget. The other percentage of the budget comes from the NCA. You get some money from ticket sales. You get some money, obviously, from sponsorships. But those are much smaller percentages of the money allocated to it. And obviously, for each institution, it's slightly different. For each conference, it's even more different. So when I say, um, where does that money come from, from the CIAA, the question becomes is, where are they going to get the resources to allow these students to play if they decide to play during this COVID-19 pandemic, play and make sure that they're safe when they're playing. And remember, as we go back now, we got to hit a year into this almost, it seems like perfect time, (laughs) is the fact that they didn't know exactly what they would need in terms of these stuff. They had some basic ideas, but this was a living case study in terms of what was going on. So the less resources that you have, the more challenging it would be to try to figure out how you could play. And ultimately, it probably was going to be a much more likely situation that at some point you were going to have to cancel the season. You know, uh, I, I want you to answer the, the – you talked about uh, at the D1 level, FCS, FBS, the, the uh, football um, series, where – the NCAA, the NCAA doesn't – do they get any money at the HBCU level, the D2 levels, the Johnson C. Smiths, the Morehouses, some of the black colleges? 
Because at the end of the day, in terms of football, right? Because at the end of the day, and and you know this, you know this perfectly. Um, whether the 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 black colleges run, you know, smoothly or not, the the numbers, the money from the athletic side, the endowment savings that uh, these uh, schools and institutions have to have and save uh, has to be ten times better. 20 times, 30 times, 50 times better, and then their PWIs. They got to keep the doors open. So if they don't That's play right. football at the D2 level, Doc, um, are they? Is it the same in terms of the money not there that the NCAA doesn't get it? But if they do get it, how detrimental is it for these black colleges at that level to be able to keep their doors open when they're not playing in the midst of COVID in, in terms of football? Yeah, that's a very important contextual question. They do get some money from the NCAA, but it is a much more smaller amount. So remember when I was talking about the range of money that institutions will have in terms of their student fees? So at a Division I school, they may have 70% or 80% of the revenue associated with a, a, $9, a $9 million budget may be coming from a student athletic athlete. I mean, student athletic fees or student fees. At the Division II level, it may go up to like 95%, even though the budget is only $4 million. So it's more important for them in terms of the money that they get from the students than it is the money they get from NCA. So it's a much smaller amount of number and a much smaller percentage of the budget that is associated with the, uh, with the NCA money. If you're just joining us, we're, we're talking with Dr. Kenyatta Cavill, uh, talking about the culture of the economics of the black colleges, the, the HBCUs, radio show, WCOM, Chapel Hill, and uh, IBM TV. So, Doc, in, at the end of the day, when you hear Commissioner McWilliams say, look, it was a tough decision, uh, we sat down with the, uh, the, the colleges, universities, we made a decision based on safety we we tried i'm back at the end of the day um it's a sort of a tough question do they get a pat on the back in terms of the courage based on the fact that you know again the ciaa is a division two you know conference like the like the CAC, the siac like you said so when they shut stuff down it may not be, you know better, it may not be as bad as Texas Southern where you are, which is, you know, an FBS. So uh, do they get to a pat on back? Did they show some real courage in deciding not to play these, these fall sports? Yeah, contextually, I think it's extremely important that they um, made that type of decision. And they were, to their credit, they were one of the first groups to make the decision. And there was almost a partnership between CIAA and SIC. And I think we have to answer that question in terms of the context of America. You know this better than most of us out there that sports is extremely important in this country. Some may say it's probably too important uh, in this country. So there is not just a decision of doing the right thing. It's also in terms of the political fallout. We see this playing out in the politics 
of these so-called Republican states and Democratic states in terms of how they're even managing uh, the COVID shutdown policies or mass policies, which half the time are not even dealing with CDC or health protocols. It's simply being done from political framework of how they can galvanize a base so they can get reelected. So we have to be able to be sharp enough to compartmentalize this in such a way that we understand that these decisions that institutions and leaderships are making are not making them just because uh, they are right decision or all things in place, but there are also uh, ramifications. We have presidents that will literally have the opportunity to lose their job based on how they make these calls and how they politically play this out. So Mm. um, we have to acknowledge that. Um, And we can talk about whether that is right or wrong, but we have to at least acknowledge that these decisions are not made in a vacuum based on just one or two items. There is the health issues. There's the financial issues. There's the political climate. um, There's the status of the cultural nuance of sports in this country, uh, among many other components associated with making these decisions. So, I think it's important that you even put that question on the table because it gives us a chance to really dissect in many ways the framework of this country about how important we line our uh, sports right or wrong. And, and Doc, you, you know, I can say this, is that I know a lot of people that, you know, weren't, you know, they it sports is like you said, it's a microcosm of society. And so we had mm-hmm. um black folks that follow HBCUs, black college sports that said, No, let them play. What are you doing? Get them on That's the field. Right. Yep. It's not That's real. Right. Fake news, all this other stuff. And and they look like us, Doc. So you know you know what I mean. That's very You've true. heard it. And, and, no, that's very true. And then and it, part of that and, is and the other thing. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I know that's important. I just wanted to draw the parallels of that because part of that is that culture. So much of our sports in this country is about us being selfish, which is that American individualism instead of institutional or collectivism. It's about my need to enjoy myself, right, whether it's going to the movies or going out to eat or being able to say that I want to eat in this establishment without my mask. Or because I don't care about this other person, whether they get it or not. It's the same thing about sports. I don't care about so much about the goodwill of these students. They're out there to entertain us. So oftentimes, even though we like to uh, frame ourselves in a different cultural framework, oftentimes we take on the culture of the masses, which says that um, these players are here to entertain us, which is a sickness in a lot of ways that we need to confront frankly, from my opinion, and I have to work on myself in regards to that. And I've been working on myself for about 10 years to make sure that I do not cultivate that mentality um, because um, once I learn about it and understood it, it's my expectation that I have to do better now. So I'm glad that but you, you know, are really dissecting this in this manner. It's important. And, and, and to your point, you, you're being very kind because at the end of the day, like you said, um, you know, uh, we take on the other side, I'll call it, I'll say it, and, and we're just like, just dribble the ball. Just score a touchdown for me. Just hit the ball. There ain't a lot of us hitting the ball. That's a whole other conversation. 
at, at the pro <laughs> level at least. Um, <laughs> you know what I mean, right? That's, so that's, so that's just, just, yeah, just dribble political. We don't want COVID. And then the other part of it is that we take on, like you said, the masses, right? I don't, you're not going to tell me to wear a mask. We we do live in, I'm so glad you said that because I had a conversation with someone else doc, uh, uh, the other day. We live in a world of individualism. We don't have a collective way of, of looking at things. We don't, as black people specifically, don't believe in the, it takes a village to raise a child. We don't believe, a lot of us don't believe that anymore. It's a crab in a barrel. Johnson C. Smith, and I'm just throwing names out there, or Morehouse, God forbid, there in Georgia. You see what's going on with the whole voting thing there and all these stuff in places. No, I need y'all to play. I, You know, and sports in a good way has always been sort of a sidebar to get away from the, the heavy thoughts and things that's going on. But at some point, also, like you said, we can't just – you in a situation in a COVID where nobody knows anything, not even the experts, you, you can't be selfish like that. Um, and I'm not criticizing and get don't get me wrong, doctors. Like I said, it's these decisions have to be made. I'm not paid to make those decisions. So I'm not saying mm-hmm. that you know um, you know Swack and Miak made the wrong decision. What I am saying is that. Um, you know, uh, when you look at these things, at the very least, you put it out there, look, look, this is a COVID, we're a mask, we're going to protect these people, and nobody should, should have a problem with that. If you're going to have a, if you're not going to have a problem with people deciding not to wear a mask, then don't have a problem with the, the, the sports people, the student of the run the show that want to wear a mask. You know what I'm saying? It can't be one-sided. And I think that's Proud part of the the issue that went into it, Doc. Um, when you look at it, when certain conferences or schools, you see A and T and A in a different division, or divisions decided to play, or decided not to play, Doc. Correct, no doubt about it. I think to your point, when you start looking at this, if we take it from a historical lens and we understand that the further we move away from um, desegregation, um, right, or segregation, because I do not like to use the term integration because I think it puts a false dichotomy of what integration truly is, especially what we know it today. Thank um, Thank uh, or what, or what many people think, what what many people would call forced um, integration, uh, if we want to use that framing, I view it as a, a, a just pure assimilation. We have started to assimilate to the norms of the Eurocentric society. And the more we move into that trope, the further we move away from, as you talked about, this cultural framework that it takes a village uh, to raise a family. Because we know that under the capitalistic framework, in many ways, it's about individualism. You know, you've heard these terms and tropes over the years. Um, Bring yourself up by your own bootstraps. Raise yourself up by your own bootstraps, right? That is this nationalist framing of the American context that you can do this individually. But when we strip it all away, we start to understand that nobody does this individually. 
But the easiest way to separate a people um, is to get them to believe in this individual construct that you have the ability to navigate this space by yourself, which becomes very devastating to community, uh, which is essentially where you're talking about the power of institutions. This country and this world in so many different ways are built on institutions. You cannot create power, certainly can't defeat an institution as an individual. At the best, it's going to take another institution to create the leverage to give you space to be able to carve out your niche to get the power, the equity, and the equal rights uh, that a lot of people and myself are looking for in terms of playing on a level playing field. And so until we really collectively understand that empowerment of us as a group, the more challenging it is going to be over the years, as many of us have felt into this framing of assimilation into the norms of society. Then, folks, this is why I have the, the Dr. Cavill on it. I mean, a, a very good insight joining us, talking with Dr. Kenyatta Cavill, professor at Texas Southern, prominent voice on business and culture, the culture, the sports, sports culture of the HBCUs and beyond. I mean, we I could go on and I could ask Dr. This. Doc, I want to get your thoughts. Uh, we talked about this before we um, uh, uh, last week, and you know we had some tech issues. For the, so I want to bring this up to you again, if if you have the time, I, I really will appreciate it. Um, sure. And and that is, you mentioned the identity, right? So we don't want to be individuals, but should, but specifically to African Americans. Uh, uh, again, we are not starting at the, the, the starting line. There is not a, a level playing field. Um, those who look like us and are with us that believe that, I will sell you to Brooklyn Bridge. Um, so when you say the identity of this, we looked at baseball the last time we talked. And it, it, I mean, if you look at you know, HBCUs in general. And I'm not picking on A&T or FAM or Bethune making moves, going to PWIs and not staying. PWIs folks out there, predominantly white institutions, going to PWIs and, and joining those conferences instead of staying with the HBCUs. not saying it, but the So I'm bringing it up that way. But when you look at those moves and you look at some of the rosters, Sports-wise, you know, in baseball in particular, um, our Hispanic cousins, you know, that's one thing. But you see some, you know, Caucasians that go to play maybe at Texas Southern or maybe at Bethune or maybe at some of the, the, the central, some of these great programs, baseball programs. And you see them at other levels, you know, maybe going to Delaware State to play football or whatever. Um, how much does that hurt the identity of the HBCUs, and and are these HBCUs trying to go the rainbow Jesse Jackson coalition type thing where they see it as a way to keep their identity but also keep the doors open? In other words, they want to make sure that they, you know, they survive. 
So they have to be creative, and this is part of it. Not to say that they want to discriminate, but it, it, you know what I'm saying. Oh, yeah. I think that's extremely complex in terms of looking at it, and we have to be careful that we don't paint it with a broad bus. But to get into dissecting your question, because I think we can learn from what that means, and at some HBCUs, it could be more of a fact that they're trying to enroll um, or increase their enrollment, which actually pays for the subsidies of the institution and all individuals that are associated with it. So it could be just a framework of doing that. But I want us to take a step back and be mindful that athletics, while it is the front porch, as some people say, of the institution, it is a smaller classification of students. So you take an athletic department, it may be um, a case where you have 150 um, athletes college athletes all the way to, let's say, maybe nearly 250, maybe almost 300 athletes. But depending on your institution, you can see how that could be a very small component of an institution, even if they have, you know, a population of 1,500 students. Now, imagine if they have 10, 12,000 students. You're talking about a very small population. Um, so even if they're trying to create this diversity initiative in terms of institution, it's very it's doing a small amount. Now, when you look at it in uh, percentages, it can't help in terms of inflate those numbers. I say all that to say I think the basic thing gets back to what we said about this country. Sports are important, and for you to be relevant in this country in terms of sports, and some people would say even in institution, which could be seen as very sad, is that at the end of the day is you have to win. And so I believe that many of these presidents, chancellors, to some degree, ADs or VPs of athletics, and certainly the coaches because they want to keep their job, um, they are recruiting what they think uh, can help them win, which can be a different frame with, with what you're talking about, the importance of giving cultural opportunities uh, for college athletes associated with the original mission of these institutions. And the reason I say original missions of these institutions, we have to be frank. Some of these institutions have even changed their mission. Particularly if they're public institutions, some of them may have been forced to change their mission of the institution, even though historically they could be connected with educating African Americans or blacks uh, in terms of whichever term you prefer to use. But because of the political framework of what legislative bodies have dictated in terms of them being able to get the funding to keep the institution low, which we already know they have been deprived of the rightful amount of money. But even in that case, it can often dictate in terms of the power structure of what individuals have to do to operate that school. Now, that's a big framework of that. But I think at its simplest form, a lot of this is due to chasing the ring. Because we all say the ring is the thing. No matter what level we are, we have sold uh, most people in the framework of sports. For you to be relevant, you have to win. And we know in most cases, for you to win, you have to have the talent. So the question becomes, where is that talent coming from? When you have a shrinking number of African Americans playing the game, 
You have the opening doors of these, what I refer to as historically white colleges and institutions, so we can show a a framework in equalization and equity between the two institutions in terms of the name. And for a matter of fact, that's exactly what these institutions were when they were found. Some would even say that they were um, framed as institutions that only allowed European or white men in those in those institutions, so you could call them exclusive institutions at one time. But from that framework is now you have this smaller pool of athletes, right? And they have more of a choice. The question becomes now, where are you going to get that talent pool from to continue participating in baseball? Some people have used that as an excuse of why they are shutting down their baseball program. You've seen that as an issue. You already have talked about even at the professional level that you have a decline in the number of professional African-American or black athletes playing the game. So that isn't going to do anything but uh, go down the escalator, if you would, in terms of the participation at the collegiate level, even less so at the high school level, because you have some urban cities that don't even have baseball programs within their urban uh, high school. And then you go down to the Little League, and you tend to see a, more of them playing at that level, but then they dissipate and go into different sports. So it becomes a very complex and complicated issue when you talk about it. But the context, I think, when you really look at it, is just the case that you have these institutions chasing the ability to have a winning program. Yeah, and I, I think it's, it's very important that you brought the fact that, you know, um, I think, too, uh, Doc, not just shutting down the programs from financial standpoint or, or uh, anything above, uh, knowing your identity, like knowing your football school or basketball yeah. school or whatever the case may be. You know, you know field hockey is not working for you with all due respect to those play and love it or whatever. You know, why are you keeping it open? Like, it's not. If you're in a in a, a crunch, and I'm not saying all, but you you know them, Doc. We we talk about them. So, so if you're in a crunch, keeping the doors, and you know the academias are, are are clashing, say with you know the 80s and that department, and and one side's gonna win, right? So if, mm-hmm. if you got frisbee going on, or I mean it's don't we need to be, don't they need to be realistic about what they're going to keep, you know, playing? And uh, Again, I, I hate it for the, the student athletes, but at the end of the day, right, the broader picture is do you want to keep playing lacrosse when you're horrible at it and, it, you know, they're not winning or whatever. It, it's, it's, it, there's some of the decisions that re- really need to be hard decisions, but in some cases, it's like if you look at the numbers and you do, it should be a no-brainer. Yeah, I think that really is an important question when you start to look at which sports are you going to participate in at an institution and what is it saying about the culture of your institution and what um, the sport is speaking to at your institution. Um, so, for example, there's only one um, men's lacrosse program at an HBCU, and it happens to be at Hampton. You know, it was previously one 
at Morgan State at Division II level, but you got this big buzz when Hampton decided to start the lacrosse program at the Division I institution. So then it speaks to um, the marketability of the institution and how realistic it is that you really can market uh, a, law, a lacrosse program. Um, are you seeing that lacrosse is played by a certain socioeconomic status of African-American students, and does that help your overall reputation as an institution and the outlook for recruiting not just lacrosse uh, students but other students that think there is a uniqueness about Hampton because they have that program? You see this uh, with Tennessee State um, as they are looking at doing a study on whether they're going to become the first HBCU to have a hockey program. Uh, we see that with Howard University with the Division I men's soccer program, the only HBCU that has a Division I program. Previously at one time you had it at Alabama A&M. They decided to um, stop participating in the sport of soccer, men's soccer that is. Um, and so you have multiple layers of what this looks like. So the fact that we're having this discussion tells you in a lot of ways, the dichotomy of how we should really look at sports across the board. Because um, you do have some people says, let's put all your resources in football or put all your resources in basketball. Or some people say even put all your resources in baseball based on what they believe uh, the sport that can have the most, most success. Some people say mm -hmm. that it's important in terms of recruiting the greater population of students. So it, it's really intriguing when you start looking at this from a more of a business and culture perspective of what is the right mix of your sports at an institution. The last thing I will add that I think is important that we cannot escape from is that the NCA requires that you have a certain number of sports depending on what operational divisional status that you participate at. And not only do they say that you have to have a certain amount of sports, they also dictate that you have to have a certain amount of sports for men and a certain amount of sports for women. So those are things that you have to consider too, because if you go below that threshold, they will threaten to take your divisional status at the given level that you're seeking to operate. So those are some things to also consider when you're talking about this. Doc, I know uh, you ain't got much time. I just want to, it's, when I get you on, I try to get as much in it as I can. I appreciate you, uh, Dr. No King. Real I need to ask you about this new culture, it seems, of um, HBCUs. And, and surprisingly enough, I guess maybe not a surprise, somebody said, what's well, HBC? Historically black colleges and universities. So um, that the, mm -hmm. when you... When you look at this new wave of, or new fad, if you will, of HBCUs hiring famous former players, in particular football, let's say, right? So, you know, you had Deion Sanders, former great at Florida State, former great in the NFL in Dallas, 49ers, you know, Atlanta, whatever, Hall of Famer, great player, corner. Um, is the new, of course, not, not completely new, but the, the coach at Jackson State football, uh, Eddie George, mm -hmm. 
who played for the Houston slash Tennessee Titans in football and running back. And he took over, brought in his old football NFL coach. So he's the new coach at Tennessee State. He's living in Tennessee. We've seen the different the different levels, even at the at NBA, uh, a different uh, um, dichotomy, if if you will, with you know maybe a Patrick Ewing coming back. And stuff. But 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 specifically to HBCUs, it how how is this going to work? It, the, the way you see it, Doc, is is this going to be the kind of positive that's going to bring forth the 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 top you know, recruits, those five-star guys that instead of going to the Jackson State, they go to Ole Miss even, let alone somewhere else. Or instead of going to Tennessee State, they go to, you know, play for the Volunteers or some SEC, you know, PWI. Is this going to attract those kids that should be going there anyway? Because a lot of their uh, – Parents or grandparents went there, but they're not going for whatever reasons, which we don't have time to discuss. Or is it going to be one of these things that fizzles out? Because at the end of the day, at the end of the day, Doc, um, these guys got to win. You can recruit guys, and it might work, but you still got to win on the field. And if they're not winning on the field, then this this could be one of those things that just kind of lights the fire, and at the end of the day, it just fizzles out. Right. First, I want to say historically, um, we've had professional players in the NFL um, that have coached yes. at HBCU. As you well aware. Now, most of the NFL. Exactly. <laughs> no doubt about it. And most of those players that have done that have actually – you know, got on the ground level and built their resume up and, and came up. I mean, uh, Doug Williams is a case that started and decided to get into coaching and ultimately wanted to coach at Grambling as alma mater. But he went the the traditional route, let's call it like that, and started at Morehouse Division II and HBCU that you're well aware of, had some success there Um um, in terms of building a winning program or rebuilding that program as a winning program, and then got his opportunity once Eddie um, retired. Eddie Robinson, excuse me, um, retired. He took over and literally rebuilt that program as well and took it to multiple championships in the SWAC. So we've seen that. So that's one thing that we have to look at. But I think your, your, your crux of the question is important. You know, is this a fad, you know, just something that kind of happens that, is taking place. Is it more of a trend? Will it ultimately come a wave, a tsunami, or is it just this phenomenon that sees taking place? I think if you take a deeper dive and you start looking at the case study that took place, is you had both of the two institutions that did this uh, among the four or five schools that had uh, high-profile coaches, is I think that you also need to put in Morgan State that actually had uh, Tyrone Wheatley that played at the professional level um, right. in the NFL. Obviously right. didn't have the same type of Hall of Fame career, So, and he was uh, coming in the coaching ranks and built his resume in that way, was previous at Michigan and came over. But what I have studied over the years about um, the coaching hire in HBCUs is similar to the historic white college or even to the NFL that people may be more 
familiar with. You have these ebbs and flows, and it's a copycat type of league. But the problem that you see with the copycat is based on whether um, these coaches that they hire have success. So let me give you a specific example. I remember at one time there was a trend in HBCUs where um, Division One programs would take head coaches at Division Two programs that won at the institutions and brought them over. You remember going to Southern with uh, Coach Richardson, Pete Richardson, that came from Winston-Salem State and went to Southern and had great program. I just right. told you about Doug Williams that went from Morehouse to Grambling. You have um, Henry Frazier III that went from Bowie State and came over to Prairie View, won a championship. You had a couple of other coaches that went in that trend that would go to Division Two, win. Uh, Rick Comage is another example that went from Tuskegee to Jackson State. So you saw that trend. That's and all right. of a sudden you had these ADs that had these trends and they were bringing over the uh, head coaches that coached at the FBS level and there were assistant coaches. They brought them over. That was a little trend. You had a couple of coaches that went through that cycle. Some of them did well. Some of them didn't well. Then you had this next trend where all of a sudden the, uh, the offensive coordinators, some defensive coordinators of HBCU programs that had won championships and national championships, they were getting plucked and getting head coaching jobs at other HBCUs. Then you had this trend where they were going to get these power five of coaches that were position coaches that were supposed to be these top recruiting for these power five institutions. They came over, and you've seen a little bit of that. They didn't. They went through the cycle. Some of them did well. Some of them didn't do well at all. In fact, most of them didn't do very well. So then you've seen another change of the goal. So my point is, is that these things tend to be cyclical, and ultimately gets down to your point. If Deion Sanders can become successful, then you may see people trying to do more of it. But I think Dion, in a lot of ways, is a unicorn. And the reason I say that, he is extremely unique. If you go back to what Dion was in his prime, whether you like him or not, he was extremely close to the trajectory of what you see with Michael Jordan, right? And those are very unique unicorns, if you would, once-in-a-lifetime type of individuals that transcend the sport in so many different ways and able to go off the charts in terms of what they're able to do in the traditional field of the public space, which in some ways is even different when you map up Eddie George versus Deion Sanders, which is a very global comparison, at least you can say national, with Eddie George to me is more regional in terms of what he means to that national area. So we have to even be careful when we talk about those two individuals and how similar they are because in some ways they're not as similar as we may think that the general public will look at. But what they said, even if you take a deeper dive, what you notice about those two hires, they were relatively young athletic directors, the VPs of athletics that made that move. When you go and look at some of the um, more seasoned uh, athletic directors, older athletic directors, they have had a more traditional approach to the coaches they hired. So that's something to look at in terms of which ADs would even consider this hire. We just saw that at Southern when they decided to go in a different direction, right? Uh, you saw that with Norfolk State, they went in a different direction. Then you also have to look at what type of model of board-driven governance structure. One of the things that you looked at Southern in terms of their makeup was the fact that they had the independent board and they pretty much had caps what financially they were going to pay for a head coach and also cap how many years they were going to put on a contract. That can make it more challenging and difficult 
when you're trying to hire somebody like a Deion Sanders, Coach Prime, or Eddie George at Tennessee State and Jackson State, respectively, when we talk about them, where you had Deion getting $300,000, Eddie George topping off at a minimum of $400,000, when Southern was only playing a Coach 215. Um, and so those are Monday things here, what? look at. You're right. What is the board going to allow these folks to do? Yeah, yeah Monday here. Come in. Hurry up. Mm-hmm. What? Is it hard in the bathroom for children? Uh, uh, the business drills in the bathroom. Yeah, and I I agree with that. Um, uh, when you look at it, uh, Doctor Deville, and in particular, uh, when you when you talk about how the state schools and really the private schools, like there's a lot of discrepancies there. Like it, there's different correct. decisions That's that correct. go on um, with those decisions. Uh, when they make those and, and, and their budget decisions uh, 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 there. Absolutely. I will say, too, I will say, too, though, just a, a comment. I only want to follow up and, and I'll get that last question to you is that, sure. you know, with, with Tennessee State, you we know, because you know it better, you're closer to it, that, you know, they let a, a coach go first in a, in a weird way, in my opinion, Right, and they let a coach go who was respected, albeit a losing record, but a lot of people respected this guy. Um, mm-hmm. No doubt, and they bring in Eddie George, so there's definitely some and and I'm very curious on how Tennessee will do, Tennessee State will do, because you know they're in the OVC, That's you know right. they're not in this historically conference, black conference, they're in the OVC. And they've had some success there, um, but it'll be interesting to see how that works out. Uh, I, I wish the best for for all of them. Um, yeah, I really, I really appreciate that question because yeah. you're talking about cultures that are layer upon layer. You have the HBCU culture at Tennessee right. State versus Jackson State that has its HBCU culture, but it's layered on a HBCU culture uh, in terms of the SWAT, which forms many HBCUs. So there's the dichotomy of the super level culture of HBCUs within a conference that Tennessee State doesn't have. And so what does that look like? Which is important when you start contact uh, having contact for recruiting. Like in a tablet. You see a a great point. Oh yeah. Tell tell me to take some Yeah, that's the that's the thing that I a great point that you said. Final question. I, I really wanted to keep it off um, line because I really wanted your insight uh, in that regard. But uh, on the field, you know, Alabama A and M is just, you know, floating on air, and you know, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Congratulations to the winning that first whack. I, I mean, they haven't won since what? Did fifteen, fifteen years, fourteen, yeah. or something. Yeah, and so it's been some time. But for for them, when you look at the swag and them winning, um, and and I like the fact, though, uh, Doc, that, you know, I like the scoring. I'm not a big scoring guy, but I think from the standpoint of promoting the game at that Mm -hmm. level, I I, I like that. But kudos to them getting it done, uh, making that history. And bringing it back there, back home. Uh, your, your thoughts on them winning? Man, it's congratulations to the Bulldogs, the coaching staff, the players, administrators, and even to the 
of the rest of the SWAC, those that decided to participate in this COVID-19. As we began the show, we talked about, you know, whether you should play or not and, and just how safe it can be. So the fact that they were able to do it um, in uh, a safe manner, I think really says a lot for all involved. So when you add that layer onto it, it makes it that much more impressive of what um, Alabama A&M Bulldogs were able to do under Coach Maynard, along with quarterback Akil Glass and the rest of the players that really uh, showed just how talented they are. And to take it a step further, it really just magnifies the swack in terms of what's going to take place in, in the fall when you have the expansion of the conference to 12 members, which will include FAMU and Bethune-Cookman. So the conference is deeper than ever. You have a lot of people that are seeking to be successful in football. So I believe coming into the fall, just to put a final point on this to some degree, is that I believe each division is about at least five teams deep in terms of who you can pick on it. So you talk about Pine Bluff, Alabama A&M, you got to believe that they're going to be back in the mix. You have Alcorn State. And so, yes, it's going to be amazing when you look at it. You can't leave out FAMU and Bethune-Cookman as they look to come in and crash the party their first year. Yeah. You you would think, especially Bethune, I think they uh, it's a little bit uh, better than FAM. Um, but uh, uh, to your point, um, and of course, Days before he won the title, uh, Coach Maynard got the extension, so they uh, they know what they're doing, I guess. So, right. Um, they, <laughs> yeah, they him up. Like, no, you ain't going nowhere. They, <laughs> we, we exactly. Like we, like <laughs> we like winning some titles. He brought it home. But, you know, he's won everybody. We, we know That's Coach right. Maynard's been winning. It's a matter of time. He's been winning. Yeah, it, it's just a matter of time, especially with his offense. Uh, before you go, Dr. DeVille, please do. I know you have a show. We didn't get a chance to pump that, but I, I want you to let people know okay. how they can reach you, follow you, and, and talk about your show, sir. No problem. I appreciate that opportunity. You can follow me on the social media platforms of Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. That's uh, D-R-K-E-N-Y-A-T-T-A-C-A-V-I-L. Again, that's D-R-K-E-N-Y-A-T-T-A. C-A-V-I-L, that's Dr. Kenyatta Cavill. And you can check out the show every Tuesday and Thursday at 6 o'clock Central Time. That's inside the HBC Sports Lab. You can catch it live on Facebook Live. And if you can't catch it because you're listening to this show, go back and catch it on YouTube at whatever time you like. And if you go to YouTube, make sure you subscribe at inside the HBC Sports Lab. Well, we we they they won't be catching it on Tuesday, so they can listen to you. Uh, I'm I'm not on, so we we definitely continue to oh, pump, pump, pump that out inside the uh, of the HBCU uh, Sports Lab. Uh, and you always do a really good job. Uh, thank you, man. I appreciate you. Be safe. Love you, man. I will talk with you in about an hour. Right. So um, enjoy. We'll talk very soon. No problem. Love you as well, brother. Keep up the great work. Really appreciate the diligence that you do about producing the show. Many years of greatness. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Always good to have Dr. Kenyatta Cavill on the air uh, on the Bastion News Radio show on the Bastion News Radio Network, WCOM in Chapel Hill, IBM TV, uh, and the number 646-999-01-
are going to be talking about uh, something that's very important. That is the George Floyd, the verdict in that case where the police officer, uh, Derek Chauvin, uh, was found guilty on all three counts that the prosecuting team uh, brought to the case in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Something is very very important. A lot of people are talking about we're going to try to get to it. We have a roundtable discussion with some distinguished guests. A couple on the line. We'll get to a couple others that are on the way. Um, one of them is Andy Piasek. He's a longtime activist and award-winning author whose most recent book is uh, Now in Motion. Appreciate Andy joining us. Um, and H. Michael Harvey is a publisher. He's an award-winning author and contributor for uh, Black College Nines, a, a, uh, a man who's written many books as it relates to race and others. And, and incidentally, we were going to get into some of the, the titles and topics of, of something related to uh, George Floyd. And, um, I, I, you know, Mr. Harvey has agreed to, graciously to to get bringing in more of a broad broader sense at least for this evening so gentlemen i appreciate you uh coming in for this discussion this evening thanks for having me la and hello to mr harvey um and 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 thanks for coming on Uh, we'll have uh, a couple of uh, chief of police that are going to come on from a uh, uh from a law enforcement perspective and uh the you know, so I wanted to touch a lot of different areas, and we'll continue. I want to start with you, Mr. Harvey. Um, just a simple question. When you heard the verdict, were you surprised, and what was your reaction when you heard it? Um, well, first of all, the, the verdict was a correct verdict, but although it was a correct verdict based upon the evidence and the uh, way in which the prosecution managed the case, I was, in fact, surprised. Uh, that the verdict came in guilty, guilty, guilty. Um, what was my immediate response? Um, a sigh of relief, but very quickly I girded my lawn again because I know that the the journey is not over. Uh, that there's um, there's more battle to be done, but I do applaud what took place the other day in Minneapolis. Andy, same question to you. Um, when you heard it, were you surprised? Um, guilty on all counts. Um, and if so, you know, what, what was your reaction um, when you heard the verdict? The whole chain of events seemed to be leading in that direction, but I was really concerned that somewhere, somehow, as we've seen so many times, some other kind of verdict might come down. So I was heartened that it happened the way it did and that he was found guilty on all counts. And I guess my first reaction was just to think back to last year and to think back to the protests that, as we talked about in other occasions when I've been on your show, have been the biggest outpouring into the streets in over 50 years in this country. And I think there's a direct connection between all those protests and all the work that millions of people have done, not just last year, but leading up to last year, going back many decades, and really seeing that what ended up happening earlier this week in Minneapolis is uh, directly related to all the heat that people put on the system um, from just not being able to take any more 
witnessing this man basically murdered uh on you know mm. probably everybody in the world who has a TV or access to some kind of video has seen it um so it was yeah. similar, I guess, to what your other guest said, heartened, but also now knowing that the only way that it came to be was because of everything that's led up to it and knowing that we have to keep on doing what we've been doing and do it better. You know, Mr. Harvey, I, 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 everybody's using the term justice in this case. Justice, mm-hmm. justice, justice. And I, I'm, well, I'll get back to me in a second, but I, it's hard to use the word justice because, mm-hmm. A, we don't know what the sentence will be uh, for this guy. And I wanted to say something else. And B, if, you know, if he, if, if he gets, if the judge gives him 10 years, he he gets off for four for good behavior. Is that really justice? It may be a sentence, but is that justice? Maybe the family feels like that, and they and they have a right to feel whatever it want. They lost their loved one, um, but at the end of the day, uh, from a broader scale, as Andy mentioned, Mr. Piasek mentioned, you know, all the the work that's been put in, and if this guy gets, you know. A minimum amount of years is that really justice? Maybe accountability is a better term, but I don't know about justice. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, you know, I, I tend to agree with you. Um, at the best that we can say for what happened this week is that is that that jury in Minnesota held Derek Chauvin accountable for his actions. Is it justice yet? No. Uh, is it justice if he got 40 years? No. What would really be justice? I, I think a charge of first-degree murder and a conviction for first-degree murder, I, I would, would be inclined to say that that's what justice would look like in this situation. But the state, uh, afraid that they would not get a first-degree murder conviction, did not bring that charge, and they brought safe charges that they felt that they could actually get 12 people to agree that the verdict should be guilty on. You know, So I tend to agree with you. What we have seen this week is accountability. He was held accountable to some extent uh, for what he did, uh, but justice – I mean, George Perry Floyd should be here today, and and the and the bulk of us in this country, in this world, probably uh, would not even know his name or know that he existed. But that would be okay because that was his life. Um, you know, so I think uh, I agree with you. It's more accountability in a sense than justice. Uh, even if he gets the maximum, which we know he more than likely would not, he was a police officer, so presumably there is a good record uh, there. Uh, so he may not get uh, the maximum sentence, although the state did put the defense on notice during the uh, the trial uh, that they would be um, asking the court for an enhanced uh, sentence. And 
uh, if he was found guilty. So uh, I, the state will go forth, and they will seek more than, uh, I, I think, 40 years is what it looks like, um, the, the total of what he could probably be um, sentenced to. But the state has indicated they, they will seek to enhance that sentence. And so we don't know what the, what the judge will, will do. But even beyond the sentence, to me, he wasn't charged with um, malice murder. And just to look at the expression on his face and the, and the whole callous disregard for the human being whom he had placed his knee upon, to me, uh, I, I can infer uh, malice from that. You don't have to have somebody to say, I hate you and I'm going to kill you. So that's the last thing I'm going to do in order to show that that was an intent to murder. I think that we could um, we could have made a case to infer that from his body language um, uh, kneeling on the neck of George Floyd. Right, right, and 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 Andy, I want you to respond to that because again, not first degree murder, and I, I don't, I I applaud. Listen, I, I have no issues with the prosecutors. They they were informed. They were structured. They they laid it out, basically telling the jurors. You know, I mean, what do you see? You Don't you see what I see? But having said that, if they see what they saw, why not first-degree murder? I mean, second-degree unintentional murder. He got third-degree murder and second-degree manslaughter. The unintentional is what it what bothered me. That was very intentional. Not only he had his knee on the, the neck, but he had this look of arrogance, like, I dare you guys, go ahead, film me. I don't care. So, I, you know, I'm not, uh, I'm, maybe it's apples and oranges in terms of they got, you know, three out of three. But, it, it, you know, if it walks like a duck, it acts like a duck, and he is not a dog. Yes, I agree. I, I think it's hard to call it justice when this man has lost his life and his family has lost a brother or a son. Um, it's a victory, I guess, to the extent that so seldomly and perhaps never, I, I really was trying to think before we started the show, have we had a police officer held to account to this extent? I guess... Um, it will send some kind of a chill through police departments around the country. Although we just have had several incidents more this very week while this whole thing was going on um, that speak to the fact that maybe there's a whole lot of folks out there who don't care what the lessons are, or what the verdict was in this case. But I think, um, it's a mixed bag. I think, yes, absolutely. It's not really justice in the fullest sense that it should have been, and maybe there was no way that it could ever be justice for a man who's lost his life for no reason other than this, you know, racist police officer decided to snuff out his life. But um, it's, it's uh, more than anything that I can remember in many years of paying attention and being a part of this work. So maybe that will be some kind of a precedent and send some kind of message along the way that we can build on. And and, and let me just say this, because I know Chief uh, um, Green is on the line. I'm going to get his thoughts. Uh, just put this out there to, to the panel that, you know, it's 
people ask, you know, and again, this is not about us per se, because we're not, unless I don't know, part of the, the Floyd family. So they have a right to feel and whatever, you know, this man is not coming back. This brother, this father, this uncle is not coming back to their family. There's this son. Um, so I, I, I'm not, I want to make sure I clarify that and say that before I say what I say. But if, if when people ask me, you know, uh, if, if are you satisfied? Are you happy with this? And and the answer, it, it, it's not maybe, you know, content in the sense that they, they got the man, but it's not justice. At the end of the day, George Floyd is not going to take his daughter to the Sweet 16. George Floyd is not going to be um, going to shoot hoops with his brothers or do anything or be at a barbecue or whatever. He's not coming back, as, as you said, Andy. Um, and at the and you also said, which is important, that the killings continue. Uh, the the shooting to this young lady, the sixteen year old in in Columbus. I mean, just moments after the verdict. So let's let's be clear. I mean, this is one case. This is one murder that you know a, a cop was convicted of. Um, but it's not something that people need to like the president wants to to say you know um it's you know it's justice and it's in the right direction it might be in the right direction but let's be clear it's not justice you still have how many knees are going on right now how many cops have their knees on on a a black dude's or white a a, a black woman's neck uh hispanic or whatever right now as we speak we don't know so let's just keep it in perspective, I think. Um, I want to go to uh, Chief Virgil Green. Of course, he's a co-host of You and the Law that airs on the Bastion News Radio Network, 7 p.m. Eastern. Of course, the rebroadcast, you can go to the site and listen to there. And I know, Chief, you guys were just – you had another um, topic for that night, and then the verdict came down, and you had to shift gears as we do on radio and talk about it, as I actually done uh, in this this show, but your thoughts on the verdict, what your thought was, and and I, I want you to touch on qualified immunity, which if we're talking about reform with policing, it starts right there. Uh, of course, with the um, the fraternal uh, uh, group that stops everything that seems to think, I guess you could just be a a, a cop and just kill people and we'll back you. But qualified immunity is one of the, the worst things that's going on. It gives these cops a pass, the law enforcement a pass to just kind of be racist or do whatever they want and move forward. But your thoughts on the verdict and your thoughts on qualified immunity. Well, LA, uh, first of all, I think, you know, listening to one of your other uh, guests on the show, I think it comes down to, uh, accountability. Um, you know, and, and, uh, first of all, does that, uh, what does that mean? I think when you have an officer who has been charged with the crimes that children were charged with, uh, do people really feel that that was the charges that he was convicted of? Is that just, um, I, I don't justice would would have been for George Floyd to have been taken before the courts to 
let the courts decide if that was a a fraudulent twenty dollar bill. Uh, that that would have been just. Uh, so the, the verdict for me, from what I took away from it, was more so holding this one officer accountable for his actions and uh, how he treated George Floyd because it was so overwhelming with the video uh, and everybody that testified that he just showed no regard for his, this man's life. And, and so uh, I just don't think there, there is some justice in it. I can't say totally that there is no justice, but I think uh, L.A. is it, more about holding this one officer accountable, which will, in, in, the, fraternity, in, in the, the fraternity of police, you have a lot of police officers who condone what he did, but you also have a lot of police officers now who are feeling like, well, I can't go out and do my job because this is going. If this happens to me, then I could be another chosen. Well, my re response to that would be, do your job and treat people fair, treat people equal and don't abuse the authority that you have as a police officer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, and, and I think, uh, I, I think too, you know, you, to your point, um, if you're worried about them, you know, uh, civilians or activists like on this broadcast coming after you, how about you not do it? How about you just don't put your knee on a man and kill him? How about that? Yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> what, you know, you what if, if yeah. in any job, guys, we know if you're doing your job, what are you worried about? You look over your shoulder if yeah. you're doing your job. Uh, but real quick, uh, talk about qualified immunity in terms of how that shields these bad apples um, from being convicted. I mean, you know, uh, these politicians want to pass this bill and they fight over stupid stuff. It just pass it, right, and make it all these compromises. Uh, that's where it starts. It has to go away. It, it really is an issue. Yeah, it does. Well, let me say this, L.A., before I get on the topic of qualified immunity, if you don't mind. I think when we talk about justice, I think we need to realize uh, that we have to confront racism uh, just as we deal with the realization of justice. I think until we, until the law enforcement uh, industry confronts the racism that exists within police officers, we're going to have, uh, we're going to see the same similar things continue to happen uh, that's going to blind justice, but we've got to deal with the racism in order to ensure that people are treated equally in equity and that they receive the, the proper justice and let the court and a jury decides that person's justice and not the police officer on the side of the road. Um, so I, I just wanted to share that with you and your listeners. But, you know, qualified immunity, um, L.A., I think it's something that really was not intended for, uh, for police officers. It was uh, something that was really 
uh, grants government officials uh, some type of discretionary, but some kind of way uh, police officers got lumped into this qualified immunity, and it's just been something that has been uh, carried on for, for, for decades. And it's something that uh, our police unions have definitely utilized to prevent officers from being held accountable. Um, and you've got you've got so many states who are trying to pass. There's some states, not so many, but some states are trying to eliminate the qualified immunity. I know my home state of New Mexico; uh, they just banned qualified immunity, uh, as well as I believe New York, LA has uh, also done the same thing with qualified immunity. So I, I think we're going to see more states do it, but this goes back to the politics of it, L.A., where you have uh, a lot of states are controlled by Republicans, and Republicans are are very cozy with uh, fraternal order of police, and so that just goes against what they stand for, but instead of standing for what's right that's going to hold these officers accountable, and, and also, whether it's civil or any other manner, that really needs to be uh, implemented and take the politics out of qualified immunity. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I got a comment in the chat room that I want to mention and, and, and put it out to you guys to respond. Uh, Mr. Harvey, he, uh, the person said, how many times are we going to turn our cheeks the police have to have accountability. And, and I mean, Mr. Harvey, you could think of, you, we, we mentioned George Floyd in this verdict, uh, but, I mean, for every George Floyd, you have the Tamir Rice, the Eric Gardner's, the Freddie Gray's, the Breonna Taylor's, the Sean Bell's, the Michael Brown's. I can go on and on and on. Um, and it's not just a racist white cop with racist white friends, you have blacks with the crab in the barrel. I got mine. You get yours. This is not my problem. They have my problem. Hey, you're in a bad neighborhood. You're in a bad situation. Hey, you know, they buy into, he, like the, the police initially tried to say, well, you know, he had a medical issue, quote unquote, and that's what caused the death. We know, uh, thanks to, uh, Danella, uh, uh, Frazier that took the film and others that we know that it's not true. But again, turning the other cheek, this, this in the chat room, that is the comment, Mr. Harvey. What say you? Enough is enough. Enough is, has been enough a, a, a long time ago. Um, somehow we have to put a stop to it. Either, either the system reforms itself, our community has to rise up and just put a stop to it. That's what I, that's what says I. Um, you know, the, the cheek's been turned too often, and um, you rattle off those names. But, you know, in my 70 years, I've had three close encounters that could have gone that way uh, that I survived. And there are other uh, men and women uh, who have had close encounters that, could have gone that way, but but for the grace of God, we're still here. So um, I I agree with the commenter. You know, enough is enough. Uh, it's time to uh, 
not say turn their cheek and wait for the next the next uh, young person uh, African American to be killed by a cop. I mean, it's just time now to stop it, to band together. And one of the things that we, as an as a community of Africans living in America, we we have to stop. Um, we have to stop killing each other. Um, we have to stop fighting each other. We have to stop having violent disagreements with each other. We just got to come together mm. and, uh, and 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 clean up some of our own um, social problems that we have with with one another. I got a follow up with you though, uh, Mr. Harvey. Uh, and let me just ask him real quick, just a, a quick, if, if he could be brief, a follow-up. Um, you're old enough to to, to uh, remember, you know, and and, and most of, of course, uh, people on this panel, um, more specifically to you when you make these comments about, you know, the civil rights and things of, of, of that nature, when you, you've seen so much you've written about so much whether it be hbcu and, and the negro leagues and baseball and everything the plight of of black people does this climate feel different in terms of hope or is it the more things change the more they say the same in your opinion if you can be brief mr harvey um i i tell you honestly i i, I don't feel anything in terms of uh, hopefulness uh, because of what happened this week. Um, you know, I'm, I'm still skeptical. I'm still, I still have anxiety. I still, right. um, um, I, I'm, I'm still very cautious when I leave my home. I'm still a little apprehensive when I pass a cop car um, or when I pass a security guy in my local Publix or, or Kroger. Um, so, so I don't know. I, I can't say that, uh, this feels differently. I do know that what happened in Georgia, in my home state, a few weeks ago when the Georgia legislature, um, uh, created this legislation to suppress the vote in the state, it, it makes me feel mm-hmm. like I'm living in free, uh, voters' rights, pre civil rights. Uh, makes me feel like I'm living in the 1940s, 1950 uh, Southern United States of America. Um, and so I have, a, still have the same apprehension about the crime thing. Yeah. That, that's, that's a great point. I was, was going to go to some uh, solutions, and that's one of them. Uh, 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 Chief Green, you were going to say? Well, you know, L.A., I think I want to go back to something that you talked about earlier about the charges, why didn't he face first-degree murder charges, if I may. Uh, You know, every state has different statutes, and and under Minnesota, uh, their first-degree murder statute, one of the first elements is, is, was this premeditated? Uh, And also, you can also be charged with premeditated for, um, you know, Kidnapping, uh, killing a police officer, uh, correctional officer, uh, domestic uh, charges. Those are things that meet the elements of first-degree murder. So I think when the prosecutor, they probably looked at it and said, could we really meet that that threshold of 
trying to say that this that this was premeditated. And and I think a lot of people will sit there and we watched over nine minutes of this video and how could you not say that it was premeditated, but premeditated would, would mean that this would have to be something that he thought of before he encountered George Floyd and not during the course of it. So I think that's why you saw the other charges. Uh, but Chief. that's what I get for, yes. Uh, you know, I, I I practiced law in Georgia for about 20 years, and, I, and mostly, I mean, all states that have a have a first-degree murder charge, it's, it's always have the element of premeditation in it. And, I, and I'm not saying that they should have charged um, first-degree murder. I'm pleased with what they did and, the, and with the results that they gotten uh, from what they did. You know, but the question was posed, well, whether or not it, it was really justice, and to me, um, it would feel more like justice if if he had been charged with that and faced as a consequence of um, his conviction either the uh, death sentence or life imprisonment or life imprisonment without the possibility of parole. To to me, that would be more like justice. Now, to speak to premeditation, premeditation can be formed at any point in time in the act. So. He he was he received a call where some younger officers had made a stop and they needed some assistance, and so he responds to the call, and so he gets there. Of course, he didn't come there saying, uh, "Whoever my partner's got, you know, I'm I'm going to kill them today." I, I, I don't think he came there with that thought in mind. But as he got involved in this process, clearly in those nine minutes and forty six seconds, I think it was. Um, you you could see where his initial intent changed and 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 possibly could have proved it from his demeanor but the state was cautious they knew that they had to walk away with convictions um and if they did not that the public would be very upset so they couched their bets on what are the charges that we most likely can get a conviction on and they went forward with that, and I have no problem with that, and I am pleased with what they did. I just think that at the end of that process, had that been a first-degree murder charge and we got uh, the guilty verdicts that we received today, then I think I would say that um, that the wrong that was done to George Terry Floyd has been vindicated by this guy, not possibly even losing his life, or spend the remainder of his life uh, inside of prison. But, yeah, but and that, that's all I was thinking. Yeah, and uh, just to, to follow up real quick, I want to go to Andy uh, Piazica. Um, you know, uh, Keith Ellis, a former congressman, of course, knows the politics of it, and he, he guaranteed a conviction. So they had to get it. I get that. I think, um, and, and this is why we need universal um, decisions, if you will, and in, in from a federal uh, level, or at least making sure the states have the same type of, um, of statutes, and of course with uh, policing in terms of the penalties too. But that that is not happening. But you can make a case this guy. You're not in his mind, but you can make a case this guy when he got the call and got there and knew the guy was black that he had every intent of harming this man with 18 different complaints from this officer that got swept under the rug 
by the Minneapolis Police Department, and I'm not giving a whole lot of credit to their their chief of police. With all due respect to you, Chief Green, because he 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 went along with what the what Chauvin and the other ones said. The other officer said that you know there was this issue of uh, at this this particular uh, uh, you know area. They arrested the guy. Oh, by the way, he has some medical issues. Some people said he was on drugs, this, that, and the other, and then he was gone. And then, of course, changed his his story. The chief was changed his uh, position after those videos came out, and then, of course, testified along with others uh, in that. I'm going to come back to that. I know Chief um, uh, Humphrey's on the line too, but yeah. I want to go back to Andy to the crest. I want to go back to the the question. Uh, Andy, how many times are we going to turn our cheeks? The police have has to have accountability. You and I talked about this on the show um, a, a week ago about how not being tired. You're an activist. Not being tired. Okay, George Floyd, there's a conviction there. Not giving up. Um, and my concern is – all of us on this this program that believe in justice and, and morality, but more importantly, from your standpoint as an activist, that we let this the police off the hook. We we even let, like you said, George uh, the Joe Biden, who was a man who wanted to see. Um, you know, black people being arrested for, for minor drugs and stuff, who was a supporter of the crime bill, the Clinton crime bill back in the day. So don't we need to be make sure that we're not letting our foot off the pedal and we need to keep pushing forward, you know, notwithstanding uh, George Floyd and this conviction? Absolutely. Um, as I said earlier, I think that's the fundamental point here. I think much of what we're talking about in terms of the possibility of convicting police officers is a direct result of the work that we've talked about pretty much every time that I've been on your program. I think we also have to be very sober in assessing the situation that we're in. We're up against a very formidable foe, a very formidable system I mean, for me, I see white supremacy as directly linked to a highly destructive, really murderous economic system where you have massive, unbelievable wealth concentrated in the hands of literally a small number of people. And to some extent, the police's main role is to protect them from us primarily from black people, but basically from anyone who has any inkling of building an alternative economic and social system, because that would call into question their ability to steal and rob us blind the way they do to accumulate their wealth. And it would bring up the possibility that we can build a society of our own that to hopefully a greater extent is built on the premise of justice and equality for everybody. As far as, and then also in addition to the fact that we're up against a very formidable foe, our forces unfortunately are small and relatively weak. Um, I'm not really sure I go along with the idea that, I mean, certainly there are some people who, 
turn the other cheek and do so too often. I don't really think that that's the sentiment of the majority of people that I work with or that I deal with, even those who aren't necessarily activists but who are fed up and angry and frustrated and attempting to find a way to do something to address some of these problems. What we lack are the kind of organizations that we need that can bring – well, we have them to some degree, but we really need to expand our efforts to bring new people in. All those millions of people who were out in the street last May and June and July and August and all those people who voted for the first time to make sure we get the white supremacist president out of office – we need to have ways to keep them connected with organizations that will be out on a moment's notice, in force, anytime there's any kind of this atrocity committed against anyone, anywhere. Um, you know, and that requires new forces. It requires bringing people in and providing educational materials and providing training, which is time-consuming, but it's absolutely essential because we have not really touched on yet uh, something that we've talked about when I've been on your show previously. Not only are we up against law enforcement that is often completely unresponsive to the demands that we are making and just continuing to do business as usual, but we have a rapidly growing fascist menace in this country of white supremacists and Nazis and other people who showed what they really stand for on January 6th in Washington, D.C., and still none of the people in power who were a part of that have been called to account. It may happen. It doesn't look like there's really much momentum in Washington to make it happen. But um, so I think that I would say the vast majority of people that I am aware of, and I can, I think, even speak generally about the country as a whole, are not turning their other cheek. They're, you know, looking for ways to connect to making some kind of long-term change, short-term change. Um, and we just have to figure out ways to double down with our efforts so that, as I said, all those millions of people who are out, who finally said this is some kind of a tipping point, watching this guy for nine and a half minutes murdered, basically caught on videotape that this is too much we we every we have to i have new people were saying i have to do something i've never done anything i've never participated in anything before but this is too much i mean up where i live in connecticut there were high school students in towns that are 99.9 percent white who were out holding rallies last spring and last summer what those people are doing now i don't really know but if we have organizations in place that we need, then they have some place that they can come to in order to continue the work so that we're not starting over at the beginning every time there's some kind of an atrocity like this committed. Mm. If you're just joining us, we're, we're, we're exactly, we're, we're, we're talking about uh, the George Floyd verdict and aftermath, if you will, a roundtable discussion. Uh, Andy Piasek, longtime activist and award-winning author. Uh, H, 
Michael Harvey, publisher and award-winning author and contributor for the Black College Nines, among other things. Uh, Chief uh, Virgil Green and Chief Keith Humphrey, who we're going to go to, uh, co-host of You and the Law, uh, that talks about these issues uh, from a, a chief's, a black chief's, uh, quite candidly, perspective uh, on the right side, if you will. You and the Law that airs on Tuesdays from 7 p.m. Eastern Time. Uh, and the rebroadcast um, on the Bachelor News Radio Network. I, I want to bring in Chief uh, Keith Humphrey. Uh, appreciate you. Uh, we're talking, obviously, about the verdict, uh, your reaction to it. We we brought up, uh, just to get you up to speed, uh, qualified immunity and how that's uh, detrimental to seeing real justice happen in these cases. Uh, it's almost like I, I, I want to just kind of, Dumb it down, if you will. You know, if you if you uh, uh, you shooting a basketball at the, the free throw line and you you make one out of ten, yeah, you made one, but you still you still have a low percentage, and it's a low percentage when for every George Floyd, Keith Humphrey, Chief Humphrey, you know, you have a man that, as I mentioned, to Tamir Rice and the Michael Browns, the Eric Gardner's, Breonna Taylor. Killed in her bed, Sean Bell. You can go on forever and ever. Uh, Dante uh, Wright, uh, most recently, situation in Columbus. Uh, what's your thoughts on that? And 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 in particular with that case in Columbus where um, I can see where it's going, where, okay, she had a knife, they're showing the knife and everything. And I understand there's some, some – she, she made – she was trying to attack from the video uh, someone else, but – why not tase her? I, I don't know. We, I'm not a, you know, I'm not a law enforcement person. You know better. But at the end of the day, with the optics in this climate, Chief Humphrey, it doesn't feel right. Whether it's right from a policing standpoint is one thing. It doesn't feel right. It just happened 20 minutes after the George Floyd case. So it doesn't feel like even if she was, you had to use the deadly force with the knife and all that, it doesn't feel like it was the right thing to do. And, and law enforcement is on, on notice with that, whether it's George Floyd with the knee or with this situation, this young lady, and they had to take her down. Yeah. So good evening, everybody. Um, First of all, yes, shout out to the city of yes. to the city of uh, city of Columbus. Uh, just very tragic. Uh, you know, any police shooting is 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 tragic. It's you know tragic, uh, but this was a, a young lady uh, that uh, was taken in her prime. Uh, but then also you have to think you have to also I would ask to pray for that officer because he uh, he's not he's not he's emotionally uh, in shock too. So you know with everything that's going on, but. To go back to what was my my, my um, response to the verdict, uh, I was I was very proud of that of that jury, and, and let me tell you why. They paid very close attention to the testimony of nearly fifty witnesses uh, that outlined uh, each step. And I think the police chief, the training staff, I think the 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 little girl that was there, I think the medical. Um, um, staff, they basically walked, you know, it wasn't just a video. They walked through every moment of the last nine minutes of Mr. Floyd's life and how uh, 
Chapin uh, contributed to that. Uh, basically, he had many opportunities, and they and they and they looked at that and they said, "You're absolutely right." Whether it was intentional or not, the fact of it is, he contributed to it. He did it. He's a 20-year veteran. He's had the proper training. Um, they 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 put it all together and said, "You know, you're going to be held accountable for it." Uh, yeah, LA, it, it is sad. 20 minutes. Uh, whether I can't remember 20 minutes before, or 20 minutes after the verdict was read. Uh, you did have that shooting. Uh, and a lot of times people really don't understand. We don't do a good job in law enforcement uh, in explaining what our tactics are and why we use the tactics that we use. Uh, you know, why was the one officer there? Well, that's not uncommon when you get a call of a disturbance and you sit down the street, you know, park, even if you park away and you see something like that occurring, you have an obligation to go and try to solve it. Is it the best situation? No. Would you like two or three officers there? Absolutely. But these are fluid incidents that occur, and, and, this, and this officer felt that someone in his life was in debt and in danger based on the information that came in, based on what he saw. And, and people ask, well, why not Taser? Well, Taser is not the, not the solution all the time. Uh, there's a process in which Taser has to be effective. Uh, someone said it the other day, you've got to be within so many, so, such a certain distance. Uh, both of those uh, prongs that come out of the cartridge, they have to be able to connect. Uh, what if you hit someone else? You know, those prongs can hit one person that you're targeting and then hit someone else. Those are the things you have to look at. And so it comes down to the fact of he felt that that person was in imminent danger of being killed or hurt. He felt that's what he needed to do. Whether whether I agree or whether or not, that's what this officer felt he needed to do in that situation. And did Chief Humphrey, just to follow up, and I'm going to go to Chief Green and uh, Mr. Harvey after. Um, did Chief uh, Humphrey... Some people would say, "Yeah, the taser could the the could have hit a, a a bunch of people, but so could a bullet. Like if he missed, mm-hmm. right?" And mm-hmm. then the other part of it, yeah. Chief Humphrey, the, the other part of it is Chief Humphrey is that at the end of the day, as we've been talking about it, and again, I I love you guys. We we want you guys. You're doing it the right way. We want you to go home to your your families. I tell you that on and off the air. I tell you that on and off the air. But at the end of the day, with with that shooting in Columbus, if if you didn't have the bad apples, if you didn't have the white supremacists, in my opinion, in in the mix of you guys doing the right thing, you wouldn't have to explain it. You wouldn't have to explain it. It'd be a good shooting, and, and you know, I mean, you so certainly the family. And maybe the community yeah. will want to know what happened, but it wouldn't be a worldwide right. thing because, be, and it's only a worldwide thing because of these but, Derek Chauvin's and all these other situations that continue to happen. Is my point? Because, but LA, this is what I said just really quick, and you and I have talked about that. We've known each other for years. This is what I said: <clears throat> these these things aren't new. The 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 excessive force uh, by police officers in communities of color or even in the nation, is not new. People have said this. You know, I, I tell people you got to understand, go back to the history of the, the uh, why, why did why were the Black Panthers established? You know, why, why do you have certain groups that were established? Um, because it was for the protection against law enforcement. Now, do I believe, do I agree with the tactics that, that they used, the, the Panthers used in later years? Absolutely not. Because I don't, I don't believe in violence against each other. You know, whether you know, police or, or citizens against. I don't believe in that. But 
you have to understand why, because there was an outcry from the black community that they felt their lives were in danger and they were being killed and they were being beaten. So the the story of law enforcement, the, uh, the Chauvin's, that's not new to the, that's not new to the African American community. That's not new at all. And so what makes it so what makes it so um, um, you know what makes it a, a really you know um, uh, interesting or what what's made it magnif- you know magnified to this level is that now you've got proof you know because I can tell you right now if there hadn't been any video with shape with Chavin, there would have been questions even with people out there there would have been questions and it would have been said he did what he needed to do and this man was actively being aggressive. So now when you got the video, what you have is the communities of color saying, we've been telling you this is going on, and you all, and, and right. you all haven't listened. The federal government hasn't listened. The states haven't listened. Police departments haven't listened. And you've tried to pacify us with these Band-Aid on gunshot wounds policies and trainings and things like this, but these keep going, and you keep telling us what you think you, we want you, you want us to hear. So that's what's making people so upset. That's why even when there's a – Shooting that may appear to be justified because I'm not I'm not the jury so I'm not going to say the shooting was justified or not. I I understand why I believe the gentleman acted the way he does, and I'm I'm hearing some people say they understand it. But what I'm saying is, we we got to do better, and and the people are tired of being tired, and and, and right. we got to stop telling people we've got to stop trying to justify everything we do. In L.A., and to listeners, when we're wrong in law enforcement, guess what? we got to admit we're wrong. The more right. we do that and show that we're trying to improve and make things better, the, the more receptive people will be when we have those those shootings that were leaked that were justified. So I, I just want to say that. Yeah, and you're right. and I, that, But it goes to the optics again. And, and to your co-host, uh, 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 Chief Green, um, Andy Piasek uh, mentioned white supremacists, and in my opinion, listen, you, you could be an airline person, a L.A. bachelor radio person, whatever the case may be, you, we don't know who we're dealing with sometimes. So if white supremacy um, is in everyday life, it could be my neighbor or whatever, they certainly are on the police force, right? So um, I think Chief Green... The issue, one of the other issues of, of sort of, um, you know, policing yourselves and, and fixing the issues within amongst your ranks uh, of your your um, your agencies is white supremacy and and this fraternal police order that just sticks up for, uh, hey, he shot, but we're a union and we're going back to the union no matter what. I don't care. He's me, put his knee on him for nine and a half minutes. We're going to back him. And even in the public, in, in, in terms of publicity, when we get out there and, and, and do the talking points, we're going to back them. So those two issues, to me, Chief Green, are, are, are some of the biggest for you in terms of uh, law enforcement. Yeah, you're absolutely correct, L.A., but I, I want to go back to something that, that you uh, commented on earlier about the Minneapolis uh, police chief. Uh, and, I, and I don't think a lot of people realize that before he was a police chief, he actually he was a part of a group of officers who sued the Minneapolis Police Department back in 2007. Uh, and now he's a police chief. And I... And I that it, things kind of came full circle uh, for him uh, because he actually 
challenged the, the, the agency in the city for their um, discriminatory practices amongst uh, black police officers. And for him to be the police chief really now says a lot, but I think when he took the stand, he uh, shared with the, uh, the jurors just how he felt as the, the lead for that agency, but also as a black man, but also as a black man who has who faced discriminatory uh, actions from the agency that he is now representing. So I just want to kind of share mm. that with you and Alyssa. I don't think a lot of people realize that he actually uh, was a part of the civil lawsuit back in 2007 against the agency that he is, is leading now. Now, when we talk about the white supremacy, uh, you know, you go back to does it exist in law enforcement? Yes. Yeah. Uh, that information has been put out by by uh, the FBI, so it's not just something that people are just nearly willy making up. There's credible information that shows that you have white supremacy in every rank of law enforcement, in the ranks of military, and then when those who get out of military, some of those come over into law enforcement, so they still bring that same baggage with them. Um, and it's something, just like with your children, I mean, you had the Fraternal Order Police invest well over a million dollars in his legal defense. Hmm. So you ask yourself, why would, first of all, what did this, what did a million dollars come for his legal defense? But that's, that's what the Fraternal Order Police, uh, that's one of the things that they do. And I think when there's more uh, public pressure and, and this is put more in the public spotlight with the FOP, that they are condoning so much bad behavior. I don't think, Keith, you can correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think I've ever seen the FOP come out and say, this officer was wrong, we're not going to back him, he's on his own. I don't think I've ever seen it. Now, it, it's possible, but I don't think I've seen it in, in, in my career as a police chief that the FOP has come out and was against a officer or multiple officers with the actions that they have uh, committed against a, a citizen. Roger, what, what, I have, what, I have seen, what I have seen or heard is we have no comment until after everything occurred. I have seen that. Uh, not a lot. But I have seen it before, but not 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 on a regular basis. Yeah. Now, let me um, let me go to um, Mr. Harvey, of course. Who um, it, 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 and Mr. Harvey, you have a different perspective, a, a unique perspective, because not only um, you can talk about civil rights and having interviewed uh, those in that um, arena. But you also, you know, have talked to and interviewed and know personally the late great Hank Hank Aaron, who had to deal with a lot of this. So you've been on all, all the different spectrums of that. We'll go to Andy in a sec. Um, so I got someone who said uh, the uh, the case with um, Nakia Bryant in, in in Columbus, Ohio, that. What are you looking at? They, the person said, "What are you looking at?" She actually had a knife, and the you know they most people in the mainstream will 
show that, yes, she had a knife, uh, I guess, to make the point. Um, and this person is trying to make it seem like, you know, she deserved to die. And it goes back to the victim being the villain. George Floyd had drugs. Well, she had a knife. And, I, and I'm not to, to the chiefs, um, to, to their protocol and what they do, I'm not, you know, kind of asking from that standpoint. But um, um, the person who wrote it uh, clearly is either white or pro-police or maybe just that that's uh, grabbing a barrel, that kind of thing, never experienced the, the, the kind of situations like you have and I have in terms of the apprehension of being police and the life on the line with police police stops and, and that feeling. But my, my I guess my question is to, uh, you, to, to for you to comment on that, that uh, for some reason – uh, if we're black, it, it it had to be something. We did something, just like um, the 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 white juror who said in the uh, Rodney King case, if he had just stopped moving, just just stop moving, and they won't beat the hell out of you. They they won't beat the hell out of you if you just stop moving. So it's always the the victim being. Uh, put in a light of a well, a villain and I wanted to get your thoughts on how that person made that comment. Well, you know, she did have a knife. And of course she had a knife. Of course. But the, the broader issue is it's always something that we're doing that we deserve to die on the street like well, animals. Well, I, I don't think that's the broader the broader question. But first, okay. let me say this. Uh, my heart goes out to the, the family, to the mother of that young woman um, who lost her life. That's right. And it's, it's more than she had a knife. To me, where, where our community in this situation, until I know more, where I think our community should be focused on is that while we are quick to point the finger and say 20 minutes after the Chauvin verdict came in, uh, that was another police shooting. We should we should focus in on the fact that 20 minutes after this historical list had been taken off the shoulders of the collective black community, our queens, our young, fine women, Mother That's of right. our future children were engaged in an all-out street brawl. We have to come to grips with that, and I think that's where we should focus. I'm not laying blame on the cops. I'm not blame, laying blame on the young woman for having a knife, and uh, it appears that she was getting ready to assault a, another person. I don't know what the squabble was about to begin with, but I think our community – needs to focus on those things. Uh, for instance, here in Atlanta, Georgia today on I-85, a uh, young black woman cut off a black male, a younger black male. He took out his gun and shot her on the interstate. They caught him today. But, I mean, why? We, I mean, the, the roads, I don't know what the roads are in the areas where you live, but there are some very aggressive drivers here in, in Georgia. They don't respect other people on the roadway. And then 
if somebody has a problem with that, they'll pull a gun out and shoot you. So our community, we have to come to grips with what we're doing to each other. Because 20 minutes after that historic verdict that made everybody, every uh, uh, you know, black adult of age in this country happy and relieved for momentarily, 20 minutes later, we had an all-out street brawl involving, you know, kids less than probably 20 years old. So to me, that's where the focus is. And I, I don't want to get into, well, the, the cop could have done something different, and maybe they could have. I don't want to get into she had a knife in her hand, and maybe she shouldn't have had a knife in her hand. Maybe she shouldn't have. I want to think, I think our focus would be how then can we stop having these kind of situations because now the cop didn't pull this person over. They came to uh, dispel a disturbance created by young people in our community. So I mean, my heart goes out to that family. I, I'm not trying to downplay the loss. I'm, I'm definitely not trying to um, praise or support the cop who fired the shot. But I think my focus is how can we solve the societal ills in our community that cause us to, be, to react violently towards one another in various situations? And and that's a that's a great point. And I I concur with that that ill, um, especially with with our young people that don't seem to get it um, and react. Um, I I would say. Uh, that conditions of, of, of some of these kids, I don't know the, the, the case there, like all of us saying in Columbus, but a lot of our conditions or our condition, both psychological and economical, uh, play a lot into what you don't know what you don't know. That's like babies having right. babies is my point. Um, and it, it, and I think that's, that's that's part of it. I think that we all that have been on this broadcast have been saying that, which brings me to to you, Andy uh, Piasic, and and that's the conditions. Like um, we can try to fix uh, police brutality. You have two police chiefs on this line that that believe in that and doing the right thing. Um, we can fix a, a lot of things, but it does start with the economics, with the haves and have-nots. The the the, the fact that you know, black and brown communities uh, and and poor white communities. You look at Flint, Michigan, who got dirty water. Like in the United States of America, this is not, with all due respect, some of the third world countries. This is the United States of America, and they can't get water to drink. I mean, really. So, it, it, Andy, it does come down to the economics, the fact that those at the top, that 1%, controls everything. That's where we're going. We, we, that's where we are. Um, and so if you have situations in poor communities and over-policing, I know Chief Green and Humphrey talk about that, where they go and strong home, stronghold these, these poor communities and put light, lightness, if you will, or, or you know, not the concern in some of these, these richer communities, they want to, continue, they, 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 to keep um, those poor or, or um, marginalized people 
from them. They're concerned about their wealth and they're taking this and and they're concerned about the crime, so they send in these Derek Chauvin's to, to keep law and order. So the economics, to, to your point, Andy, plays a lot into the broader scheme of everything. Uh, the heyday of American empire when enough wealth was being passed around, even trickling down in little bits to the people at the bottom, that's long gone. It lasted for 30 years or whatever. But ever since the 1970s, everything indicates that more and more wealth is being concentrated at the top. Everybody else who's below, say, the lowest 80% is having more difficult lives. And when you have people who are defeated, beaten down, observing all the kind of things that we've been talking about today where people can be murdered, people who look like them can be murdered basically on television without any repercussions. Um, it fuels uh, incredible anger and um, frustration, the whole gamut. The other thing I think helps to some of this perspective is just the incredibly violent nature of American history whether we talk about absolute genocide of red people who were here and never did any harm to those who first came here until they realized that they had to take up arms to protect whatever little bit they had. On through slavery, you know, a slave trade that lasted hundreds of years and in which people who had made any effort to kind of resist or run away or stand up basically could be murdered and were murdered and made in big numbers without any repercussions for the people who were running the slave trade and basically the controllers of the economic system. And it was actually just this month in 1967 that Reverend King gave one of his most famous speeches at Riverside Church in uh, New York City. He called the United States the greatest purveyor of violence in the world at that time, and that has another thing that has only gotten to be more true today. So when you see the solution of the United States government to deal with Iraq or North Korea or Iran, which is to wage war and bring about the deaths of whatever number of hundreds of thousands of people in Iraq, uh, whether we go back a little bit further and talk about Southeast Asia, where perhaps as many as 5 million people in Vietnam and Laos and Cambodia were murdered by the United States. I think the, hot, the talk about doing away with guns or cutting back on guns or how can we deal with violence in this country when it comes from people in places of power is uh, ridiculous and people know that it's shallow and they see right through it look at the way you're reacting and dealing with us by shooting us and killing us and you're coming around talking to us about we should not be violent now having said that i absolutely agree that people and i'm speaking as a white person uh, definitely somewhat of an outsider who does not have any of the kind of experiences that you all have talked about and described. But I think it's for black people in black communities to try to figure out with support from individuals in police, such as those who are on the show today. It's not for the federal government or the police as a whole to say, you have to stop being violent. Meanwhile, they're, perhaps the most violent people of all. <clears throat> but it is something that we have to come to term with, along with all these other things. 
how are we ever going to have a situation in this country where there's less violence and there's less need for police when the living standards of the vast majority of people are declining and wealth is becoming Mm. further concentrated at the top? If that continues, the logical conclusion is everything that we've talked about is going to get worse. People within these inner cities and everywhere else are going to become more exposed to parasitical criminals preying on them. Their lives are going to become more dangerous. There are going to be more and more violent situations every day. And um, people are going to be living on the streets in greater numbers than is already the case now. So, I mean, I think we have to address all these individual questions to some extent individually because otherwise you can get overwhelmed with all the different things that have to be dealt with. But I think we do need to keep in mind a systemic approach that we can patch up this thing over here and we can patch up this thing over here. But if we don't have an overall analysis and understanding and critique of a barbaric, murderous economic and social system that will continue to be exactly that on indefinitely into the future until we collectively deal with it, then we're going to keep dealing with all these issues that we've been talking about, plus many others, uh, in even greater numbers. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. It, it can only get worse if we don't address some of the cancers um, within our communities, within ourselves. Uh, final question for all of you guys, and I appreciate all of you staying on as long as you have. I want to go to uh, Chief uh, Virgil Green first, is solutions. Solutions within, within your ranks, solutions from a political standpoint, is it because they're the ones that are going to pass the laws that you can't, you, you can't force or change a person's heart, but you can change policy. And policy can bring forth uh, voting, of course. Uh, I know Mr. Harvey in, in Georgia, the fight there, the changes there, but it's going on um, all across the country in a lot of these positions that are, are, t- are being levied uh, through uh, statement, um, you know, state laws. But what are your thoughts, uh, Chief Green, and solutions to kind to um, right the shift and actually have real justice and bring forth hope because like myself and uh, Mr. Harvey, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm very pessimistic, uh, even with the result and the verdict of George Floyd. Well, you know, Ellie, I think one of the things would be uh, voting. I think we, yes. it's been mentioned on this program, it's been mentioned by your guests, um, people really, the amount of energy the amount of, of people that are protesting, those same individuals, black, white, every race, need to make sure the state that they are in, that they participate in their local elections, whether it be on your city council, whether it be for your state representative or a state senator, uh, as well as on the national level. That's where we're going to see some real change implemented if we put people who have a desire to serve as an elected official and not somebody who wants to get in that position and it becomes self-serving. So you got to make sure that you are 
selecting the right person to represent you so they can be a voice to make changes within, again, whether it's on a city council level or whether it's on a, on a state level. Because what, like, I'm in Oklahoma, and Oklahoma is predominantly uh, a Republican-run legislator, both in the House and in the Senate. So when you're trying to present, we have a black caucus who is very limited number, probably less than 10, and they're trying to bring about some criminal justice reform. It can't even make it out of the committee because of how the branch, how the legislative branches uh, is uh, is made up when it's more dominant on the Republican side. So, again, that's, to me, L.A. is where we need to really see people focus more on and participate and show that same energy in protesting like we've seen this past year. Uh, we've seen a record number of women become elected in, in, on, a, on a local level as well as a state level and even on a federal level. Uh, that's what's going to bring about change, and that's what's going to make law enforcement change their policies because law enforcement goes off of, off of when state statutes are implemented, how law enforcement is going to, to change the business of law enforcement because it is a business, and we need to make sure that the business that we're – we need to get back to the protecting and service. But the main thing, L.A., is for people to take that – energy and to put it into uh, being activists and being make sure that they get people to register to vote. So we don't see what's happening in Georgia. Uh, uh, but those are some things that's going to, again, impact uh, law enforcement and how law enforcement goes about uh, the policies that they are implementing. Great point. Um, Chief Humphrey, you know, um, I saw Tim Scott, the senator from um, South Carolina, uh, trying to make a compromise with um, the Democrats in terms of the George Floyd uh, a bill that they're trying to push through. Obviously, the House pushed it through, as you know, I'm sure you're familiar with. Um, one of the things he said was about um, uh, the Democrats want to sue police officers and or the agency, he's saying, uh, sue the agency, it'll be more impactful. I mean, I'm bringing those up, those things up because at the end of the day, it's going to, it will affect your agency as a chief uh, in Little Rock, Arkansas. Um, it could impact, you know, a lot of the things that you do. But again, you standing on the, the right side of justice it is what it is. So with with that being said, like you, you both are chiefs and you know someone has been uh, participating in something, maybe, maybe white supremacy meetings or whatever, and you don't, your, your hands are tied, you know, how do you even bring forth uh, the correction uh, to, 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 to help your agency and then, what would be, like, the question is, what would be the solution to help some of this? You know, I don't I don't know what the solution is. Like, what I can tell you is that we, we have to keep fighting. And, and it's amazing that, that Scott said that. You know, I mean, that's, that, that in itself is just crazy. Because my thing is, if you commit criminal acts, police officer, 
you know, you, you know, if, if you're a citizen, if you're if you're a regular citizen out here, you're non-commissioned person, and you commit a crime, there's some there's some there's penalties that you're going to have to pay. There, you know, you're going to go to court if you're found guilty. You're going to pay a large fine. You're going to get probation. You're going to go to jail. If you have a police officer that's intentionally out here being racist, profiling, um, making those knowing, knowingly making those mistakes. Absolutely, they should be held accountable. But what happens is that reason that that uh, people, you know, FOP and, and things don't want that to occur because the city has the cities or the or, or other local agencies have the deep pockets. So they don't want that because they don't want the officer being held accountable. They want the city. So if the, if, if the officer is held accountable, the city will have to write the check. That's where a lot of it comes in. That's why a lot of it is no deterrent. That's why people say, well, you know, we have officers that say, well, if we're getting a wreck, yeah, we were, you know, the city's going to pay for it. The city can get another car. I mean, that's the mindset of some of these people, you know, some mm-hmm. of these officers. That's why you have the union. You know, the union has insurance. So why do we have we, – we buy insurance for our cars, but why do we have it? For coverage, uh, to make sure that we've got uh, – uh, even if we're liable for something, we have some coverage. So why would you, as, as Scott is saying, why would you worry about it when you know that, that, that the city's got the deep pockets? So let's let the city, let's let the government, let's let the counties, let's let them handle it. That's in the wrong message because I'm telling you, if you start making these officers like Chauvin um, uh, pay for it instead of the city, you know, the city came to that historical agreement, you know, settlement. And that's good, but I think Chauvin needs to pay not just by going to jail. There needs to be some consequences regarding him as financially, his pension, his house, his car. You know, those things need to be so people will say, "Man, I'm not going to do that." Right. Uh, now, just a quick follow-up, you can, because I'm running out of time, um, uh, Chief uh, Humphrey. Uh, but it, what what about it if if you? I'm just playing advocate. If you if you go after the officer itself and not the agency, does that discourage you know other officers from even signing up? It's almost like okay, but we know teachers get sued individually and not the the school district. Then would somebody want to be a teacher? I think you always have that. I think you always have those individuals that want to do the right thing, and, and it's not going to it's not going to uh, deter them not to want to be officers. But it, it could hurt because people believe that we've got this. We don't have to worry about it. I'm not saying it's right. I'm not saying it's wrong, but I do think we've got to start holding our officers. And sometimes just discipline uh, is not just the, you know, a couple of days off and things. You know, that's why you have discipline. You try to change the behavior. Uh, I don't know how to change this behavior. I don't want to see good officers who are doing their job and may have made a mistake. And I'm not talking about up to the level of, of taking someone's life because each of those cases are different. I don't want to see them have to pay. I don't want, I mean, I don't want to see them have to lose their home and things like that. But these intentional acts, like what Chauvin did, these intentional acts of people profiling people, these intentional acts of excessive force based on with, for no other reason but just because you can, those are the things that I believe that, that there should be accountability based on those officers, uh, based on those officers' actions, they should be held accountable. 
that that's what I'm saying. There, there's got there's got to be something that's got to be done because it, this does continue to be a problem. And that may not even be the answer. I, I don't know what the answer is because I think hey. we've done everything we can do. I, I think I think we've yeah. done everything from the training, from gutting every you know, from gutting the escal gutting the the policies, de escalation, you know, bringing in new chiefs. You know, going with a whole different price, softer uniforms, and it's still happening. So I, I don't know what the answer is. Yeah. Uh, I, hey, LA, can um, I make a comment real quick? Get, yeah, real quick. Go ahead. Yeah, I think one of the things, when we talk, when we see officers that's been disciplined, the way some of these guys look at that now, L.A., is the fact that, hey, you've given me four, four or five days off. Well, I'm not really losing anything because guess what? I've got a I've got a, a side gig that I can go and work that's going to pay me $30, $40 an hour while I'm still getting paid for being off, but I'm also, I've got an off-duty job where I can go sit at a bank somewhere or, or do whatever, and I'm still making $40 an hour. So we got to look at the other, other things to really hold officers accountable when it comes to discipline them uh, and make it to where they're going to really – understand what that discipline uh, action is about to where they won't do it again because, again, it's, it's up to them to change their behavior, but until something else is done to hold them more accountable financially, these guys are going to do – they're going to continue with the same bad habits that they have. So that's just my little uh, opinion about that. No, I was thinking the same thing to to your point um, that, you know, they're just, hey, I mean, I'm doing security at a club that night anyway, so I'll just go ahead and, you know, I'll take the time off. Hey, or they might just want the time off. Hey, I'm go rest, go fishing or whatever you're going to do. I mean, so uh, to your point, uh, Mr. Harvey, and uh, I appreciate uh, you standing on as long as you had uh, uh, solutions. I think the, the politics of, of it has always been the issue. It's just like the NRA with gun control, Mr. Harvey, and, and everything else, mm-hmm. that these politicians that, by the way, don't deal with the stuff that we're talking about, more than likely, can play God and decide what they want or what they don't want. Um, meanwhile, we're getting uh, uh, killed on the streets and to the, to the point of the economics as well, what it trickles down to, to Andy Piastic's uh, point. But what would you say would be some solutions uh, to, to, to right this ship, if you will? I'm with Chief. I, I really don't know. Um, I, I'm still contemplating, thinking about um, what, what the answer uh, to these uh, questions of, police abuse um, is. I, I don't know. And, um, I, I I thought that maybe by the time you reach me, I would have an answer, but I don't have an answer. We need to find an answer. And um, um, it's a systemic uh, problem. And maybe, maybe the answer is, is that you go through and clean out the bad element and you just start all over again. By by removing the um, the immunity from officers, if officers decide if if people decide they do not want to become police officers because they are they are no longer immune uh, from prosecution for the bad acts that they commit, uh, then that's probably is a good thing. That's that those then are people 
who um, who are who may be prone to commit uh, bad acts in the future. So if you don't have them on the force, and you allow then uh, new people to come in who who have a different approach to policing uh, and to policing people in a particular community, uh, you know maybe that is the solution: is get rid of the bad apples, uh, run them away, even if it is through. Um, through uh, removing the uh, immunity that they have from prosecution. Uh, well, Mr. Mr. Harvey, Mr. Harvey, let me ask you this, though. If they don't go, again, they're not police officers, so they, they go to security or they go to airline security or they whatever. I mean, you can't change a person's heart. We all agree with that. So then, again, if they're not police officers, then they go on to something else and they take their racist views or their brutality type of uh, tactics views somewhere else. So in the climate or in the scheme of systematic racism and oppression, again, I mean, right now we were focusing on George Floyd because it was a police and civilian type thing, but if they're taking it somewhere else, then what do we do at that point? There you go. That's why there's no answer right now. (laughs) Yeah, you know that there is no answer um, because almost anything that that you do, it comes back to whether or not there are individuals in the world who uh, for who hold views uh, based upon race, based upon skin color. You you can't. I remember sitting in. You know, I integrated to public junior high school in my hometown, and I. Remember 